0: Join us, RadChat, at the Oncology Professional Care, the UK's leading event for the whole oncology community.
1: It is free for all healthcare professionals and is returning this year face-to-face to the Excel Centre in London on 24th and 25th May. Go to oncologyprofessionalcare.co.uk to book your place.
0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to RatChat, the first therapeutic radiographer led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 43. My name's Joe McNamara, and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jolka Anderson. Hi, everyone. So, a big thank you to our last guest, Dr. Emma Hyde, who talked about personalised care in radiography. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guests for this evening, Kath Holborn and Emma Hallam, who will be discussing survivorship, late effects and supported self-management. Hi, both of you. Hello there.
2: Hi, Jo. Hi, Naaman.
0: Both of you, I feel very privileged that I kind of <laughs> know you both quite well. But for the audience, do you want to tell them a little bit
2: about yourselves and your current roles? Um, hi, everyone. My name's Katherine Holborn. I'm... Um... I work as a senior lecturer in radiotherapy and oncology at Sheffield Hallam. I'm still registered with the HCPC as a therapeutic radiographer and um, the majority of my role at Sheffield Hallam is in the delivery of our post-registration MSc uh, provision and um, I've recently taken on the role as a training and education lead for our Advanced Wellbeing and Research Centre as well, which is uh, sort of aligns nicely to this topic.
3: Okay, so um, I'm obviously Emma Hallam, as you know, um, and I'm a consultant therapeutic radiographer um, at Nottingham, um, and I lead the Nottingham Late Effects Service, um, which is a bespoke service for anybody who is experiencing a physical or psychological effect as a consequence of their radiotherapy and or chemotherapy treatment. Um, and I also work really closely with Sheffield Hallam University providing education for um, on late effects and supportive management through um, radiotherapy um, and living with and beyond cancer.
0: Perfect so both two very different roles but working synergistically together and actually Kath has a lot to <laughs> a lot to be responsible for because I'm only a lecturer because of Kath because she was like Joe, I'm drowning in marking will you help me and that was my first ever little insight into being a lecturer so Kath a lot of a lot of students are probably going oh no she's responsible for that. Um, <laughs> So, Kath, do you, we'll start with you. Can you tell the audience a little bit about your kind of career pathway today, and what got you into into lecturing?
2: Okay, so well, I um, started a long time ago as a qualified therapeutic radiographer. So, I actually trained with Emma. So, we've known each other a long time. Um, we qualified in. 98 I think 1998 and I started work at what was the Cookridge Hospital in Leeds um, and sort of uh, obviously worked there as what would be now classed as sort of band five going to sort of band six role and then moved to Nottingham where uh, you know back then it was sort of a senior two superintendent team leader type role that I worked up to again working with Emma our our paths crossed again back at Nottingham. Um, and I suppose back then, um, there wasn't a lot. Well, advanced practice wasn't really a thing. The four tier structure was just coming in, but it was more focused on assistant practitioners at the time and implementing at that level. Um, and yeah, there wasn't really, you know, you either went in sort of education or sort of more sort of leadership sort of outside of the clinical environment with, you know, if you wanted to progress any further. And I'd al- always enjoyed um, this sort of the teaching side of things, the education side of things. And yeah, it just, um, you know, everything sort of fell into place, really. There was a, an advert for a lecturer post at Sheffield Hallam. Um, like I say, it was something that I really enjoyed, the teaching side, supporting students on placements. So I sort of thought, well, I'll give it a go. And long story short, started in about, I think it was 2003 at Sheffield Hallam. So I've been there a long time pretty much contributed to all aspects of our provision. Um, and yeah, over the years, I've sort of developed my own areas of interest. Firstly, into sort of the post-registration, master's level side of things. Really, really enjoy that side of my role. Um, and over the years, my areas of interest have um, developed towards prostate cancer firstly. So I do a lot of work with Prostate Cancer UK as well, run the MSc in Prostate Cancer Care Care, Deliver modules associated with that, and more recently, I really do have a, a keen interest in the whole sort of cancer survivorship, uh, personalised care agenda, um, and sort of the the topics that need to be delivered aligned to that. Really, including things like advanced communication um, is a really big one as part of that. So yeah, I think that's me. Perfect, thank you. So Emma, do you mind giving us a bit
0: of a rundown of your career pathway?
3: Yeah, so um, I qualified back in I think it was ninety eight. Kathy, we did qualify, Um, and I first worked at Leicester um, as a as a radiographer grade, and then senior two, and then I moved to um, Nottingham, Um, and we know was was really you know a treatment radiographer. I loved that role, but my passion has always been around the information support. Um, arena really if I'm honest Um, so um, I quickly became a super four as we called it in them days Um, and then I um, decided that I wanted to move into information support and rad review and I never looked back if I'm honest I absolutely love going above and beyond and supporting the patients Um, I started um, my role in information support really supporting breast cancer patients through treatment and then I was really fortunate that a position came up in head and neck Um, and I was like I really want to get my teeth into something that's a bit more gritty Um, and at the same time I was offered to um, by one of the consultants Dr Judy Christian to set up and develop the Nottingham Late Effects service and that has just been the most humbling experience that I could ever imagine um, I absolutely love cancer survivorship, helping patients when nobody else knows what to do with them. Um, so I've been really fortunate to have this position. Um, I've been really fortunate to have Cath by my side throughout all of this, who has supported me all the way through my masters because I always go, oh, I can't do this, um, through my non-medical prescribing and also through um, my advanced communication. Sorry, my advanced clinical assessment skills. Um, and Kath has really been a driving factor in my academia side um, of of everything and also the support from the rest of the, the, the staff at Sheffield Hallam. So it's been a really working relationship and it's really good that I can now give some of that back, uh, my clinical expertise in supporting um, the different lecturers on on their modules and things. So I really enjoy that side, the education side of it as well.
1: well that sounds amazing. Uh, very long careers so far. I'm not going to say what I was doing in 1998. <laughs> um so kath you know you've talked about some of the modules that you're involved in at sheffield hallam university you talked about survivorship just for anyone you know what is survivorship and why is it important
2: okay so um so i suppose if you think of survivorship as a, a very broad term first of all so um survivorship encompasses all people uh, patients but also their family members, their loved ones that are really sort of um, living with the consequences of cancer and its treatment. So I think probably everybody knows this by now but it's certainly not just limited to those that have maybe had an early cancer diagnosis, have had their treatment, completed it and then sort of you're in that sort of classic follow-up survival type period. Um, it really does encapsulate everyone across the disease trajectory. So it, it should incorporate care for those that are with more advanced cancers, having continual treatment, lifelong treatment sometimes, coming back for treatment because of progression. And it should also encompass um, and al- aligns very nicely, actually, to the principles that have been around for a long time in the palliative care setting. But it should also encompass um those you know within the palliative care setting as well Um, and it's really uh, in terms of survivorship care uh, it's really about enabling uh, people to have as good a quality of life as possible um, in the context of those consequences that they are living with um, you know because of their cancer and its treatment and I think, uh, so, so a common term that's often used instead of survivorship is actually, you know, we're helping them to thrive. Um, so patients themselves will often use that term um, because it really is about the importance of giving them that quality of life and allowing them to thrive. But it's not about equally setting up unrealistic expectations as well. And it's about acknowledging that um, it is very much allowing them to thrive by coping better and managing the consequences of their cancer and its treatment more effectively with with support from us, but also bringing in the whole sort of self-management side of things as well. Um, Another term that I like is uh, sort of this uh, supporting them to uh, adjust to a new normal and I think that that really encapsulates for me survivorship care as well. So it's recognising that we do change their life the cancer changes its life the diagnosis of cancer but also our treatments they are life-changing even if in just a small way Um, you know a popular topic at the moment is rehab and Emma and I often have discussions about this it's certainly not about rehabilitating back to what life was before a cancer diagnosis and I think that's a really important principle to take away from I suppose this conversation we're having now in terms of what survivorship care is Um, I think in terms of why it's important for me obviously there's the whole thing of there's just so many people now that this covers in terms of our treatments advancing and many more people living with uh, cancer and its effects, and we have to find ways of supporting them effectively that makes the best use of our resources, and getting them the help, the specialist help when they need it, like with Emma, but also getting better, at enabling s- s- self management as well. But I think ultimately, for me, it's it's important because of the consequences, because of the quality of life impact, and we do have a duty of care to not only treat them and hopefully control or cure their cancer, but not, well, we do leave them with life-changing consequences and we have to support them to live with those, that is my sort of passion and, and Emma's too, I think. It's, I think everybody knows that it's, you know, we, that we know about the physical and we know about, I think now, I think all of us understand the holistic impact of that, that it has then wider consequences psychologically, socially. I think, socially, I think sometimes is forgotten i don't know what em thinks on that but you know the social impact whether that's financially work-wise uh, f- being isolated due to their side effects not wanting to engage with their friends anymore their family um it can have such a massive impact socially um i think people recognize that the holistic side of things and survivorship care is very much about a holistic approach but um I think it's more than that now. So, again, in terms of survivorship, as you guys know, know, the, the, the terminology, um, as was probably discussed in the last podcast, is more around personalised care. So it's also about recognising that, um, you know, people have these consequences. In fact, you know, if you were just to look on paper... You know, There's groups, populations of patients that will have a certain consequence of their treatment, whether that be a physical effect or the psychological issues that go along with that. But then every individual person has their own personal experience of that. Um, And that's influenced by those sort of wider social determinants of health as well, their own life circumstances, what's important to them, where their preferences lie. And really, that's the direction of travel in terms of survivorship care now, sort of really seeking to understand what matters most to that individual uh, and trying to tailor our treatment and care around that Um, so so yeah hopefully i've answered your question there i think the one thing i just wanted to sort of one other thing i was sort of wanted to say before we go which i think will lead nicely onto emma's is um personalized care that if you read the literature on that and i'm sure it was discussed last time you know supported self-management is a big part of that but it isn't just about, um, and, and as part of that, um, you know, it is about, in you know, advice around help things they can do to live healthily and support themselves. But, you know, in terms of managing the consequences of treatment, the provision of late effects services is just so important um, and a, a big part of supported self-management. So I think when we talk about supported self-management, we think of, it, it's not just about giving advice to help patients manage you know do the more simpler things to help manage and cope with their condition it requires support um, and sometimes specialist intervention depending on the severity of their side effects and 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 I suppose that's what we're obviously here to talk about tonight the sort of the late effects management side of things to survivorship care I mean it can be basic things I'm you know I I, I don't want to move away too much from the, the late effects side of things but you know more generally, it's important to engage um, patients in uh, discussions around the importance of physical activity, for example. So that's uh, that can be beneficial for so many reasons, um, and it can even be targeted physical activity exercises, such as pelvic floor exercises, to help manage incontinence, for example, for pelvic patients. Um, but but yeah, physical activity is a big part of the self-management agenda. Um, But it can also be about making sure that they're able to navigate support resources around um, getting uh, support for financial, vocational um, support out there in the community, signposting them to peer support um, resources. Signposting is a big thing, I think, if you're not in a specialist role, to be able to signpost people to good quality resources. The charities are a good resource for that um, side of things um but yeah a general self-management you've you've kind of got the general side of things and then the more targeted depending on the consequences you're trying to manage but the general side of things are to do with sort of um encouraging that engagement in physical activity good nutrition um and i suppose also i mean Emerald will be able to sort of perhaps talk about this as well but you know sort of giving them the tools to sort of uh, manage their emotional well-being as well you know assuming that they've not got a a more severe level of psychological stress distress it's kind of giving them the tools to sort of manage psychologically as well uh, relaxation techniques mindful you know those kind of um, signpost into that kind of resource Um, just giving them the tools after treatment to sort of help themselves a big thing is um, and again this links to what Emma's going to talk about I think is um, you know when when you when they finish that particular treatment with with you say for example um, you know the importance of them being able to understand what a late effect is um, when they might need to you you know the importance of reporting that at follow-up um, knowing where they can get help when, uh, and that they can talk about consequences that they're suffering from, and know that there is potentially, hopefully help out there with, with that. So early identification of late effects is a big part of that, and the patients can play a role in, um, you know, self-reporting their concerns.
0: It's really interesting what you said about survivorship Catherine I know you've had um, a really successful run of the survivorship module that you um, that you run at Sheffield Hallam University and it's great that there's so much uptake of that but it does also highlight how many people need that education around survivorship and late effects um, so that's brilliant that that exists.
3: Emma, can you tell us a little bit about the late effects
0: service that you run?
3: Yeah, so um, we set this service up in, back in 2013. And when we originally set the service up, we really thought we were going to be inundated with pelvic patients because that's where a lot of the work had been done around pelvic radiation disease. And it became very clear very quickly that actually there was as many, if not more, head and neck and breast patients who were really struggling after they'd finished treatment. So uh, we already set out saying we were going to see any patient, but we really focused, we thought, on prosth—sorry, uh, on pelvis at the start. Uh, but we really realised that we had to expand this. Um, and if anything, I'd say they've probably overtaken the pelvis patients. Um, what I think is really key is to really recognise that you th- we think that patients are having these consequences dealt with during their follow-up and they are not. What they're doing is having it noted in their notes of whatever format that is. Um, It'll say, oh, that'll be a late effect of radiotherapy. And patients get referred to me and they'll say, why wasn't I referred four or five years ago? And I just have to go, "I, I can't explain that. Often it's because whoever they are seeing, whether it be a CNS, a surgeon, an actual oncologist, if they don't think there's anything that can be done about it, they don't delve into it anymore. The other big problem is, is how do we decide whether that is problematic enough to have a referral to a service and actually it should be about the patient's subjective bother, not about whether that doctor or nurse specialist or whatever therapist they're seeing decides whether that's problematic. They may only get up once a night for a wee, but if they've never got up in the night for a wee and they cannot get back to sleep, then they're not managing to get to work the next day because they're so tired, that is really major. Whereas they might only refer a patient on to a continence service if they're getting up six, seven times a night. So it's really about, you know, looking at, at, at what is that patient's bother, but just recognising. Um, so it became so clear the more our service has been developed about what patients want and the patients that we've seen. And that's what I think is key, really. Um, We think we can go into setting up these services and what we think we might need, but until you get those referrals in, you know, half the time I'm then saying to the patient, "I'm going to have to go away and research this and see what I can do for you because I've never, I don't, you know, I've got nothing for you on this. But let me go and see what I can find in other complex conditions and long-term conditions and what can I bring into um, into into this service to see if it can help you with whatever consequence you may have.
0: Now, I know there are people out there listening and maybe thinking, yeah, this sounds amazing. This is what the patients want or need. I'm going to set up my own service. But what do they need to do?
3: How are they going to do it? So this is the hardest question. And I must get, I've had hundreds of emails on this um myself and lisa durrant who is another um late effects consultant down um, in taunton um we constantly bang our heads up against a brick wall against this because you know there is no guidance out there we we set these services up lisa's service was set up by um, somebody previous to her uh, but then she took over it a year after it had set up and that was a year after we'd set ours up so very similar timings really But there's no guidance out there on this. So actually nobody knows how to set a service up and you can only set a service up with what you've got access to. So first of all, it's about funding and where you're going to get that funding. Our service was funded by Macmillan in the first instance and we're very grateful to Macmillan for that. And it's been trust funded since, although we've had other pots of money from Macmillan to expand it. But it's about seeing about what your need is, what your patients are. So you can go into this thinking, right, we need a gastroenterologist, we need a dietitian. But if your referrals aren't pelvis, you probably don't need that. If it's actually the fact that it's head and neck referrals you're getting more of, you might need more of a physiotherapist and more um, access to OTs. You don't know what you're going to need until you get those referrals in. The other thing is you need to tap into what services you've already got there. So when we set up, we literally, within the first couple of years, were knocking on doors within our trust saying to like the fatigue service, the chronic pain team, the lymphedema team, can you help our patients? If I'm honest, a lot of time the doors were shut and said, no, we can't because we... we, we, Unless you're going to pay for our service, which of course we don't have the money for that, so a lot of these services actually said to uh, said to myself and my colleague who set the service up, Liz, who stones, who's now retired, um, said, "But we'll train you." So the amount of training that I have had from different services, it, I, I can't write it on a you know, it, it's massive. So it's really about just seeing what services you've already got out there and setting out on these services. Because what you think at the start is not what you'll end up with, if I'm honest.
1: That's where the holistic needs assessment comes in from the beginning. So even from pre-treatment, really, that's where you get baseline data to understand this is something when i've worked with lisa she always said whatever happens even if it's nothing just write it down because in 10 20 years time we'll know what they were like when they started and exactly as you said i think on treatment review sometimes some some people can be worried when a patient says oh yes i'm now getting up one once a night but if you don't know what they were like six months ago you're not going to know well actually it hasn't changed if it's still one a night that means that the treatment's you know working but nothing's really got worse and i think that continuity of care, I think it's it is there, but it's not always, as you said, picked up. I think the follow up when so if for example if I do a follow up call two weeks later and they've had their follow up with their consultant, there might be some data there, but nothing, as you exactly said, nothing's been done about it. But uh, you know, until all those referral pathways are there, I don't, I'm sure you with your emails, what have you been telling people? Just go to all these services and talk to them, or.
3: Well, what, what Lisa and I have set up a specialist interest group with the Society of Radiographers to try and really see how we can kind of coordinate this care. And, and we would love to come up with some guidelines along with um, the team at Derby and also the team at Gloucester who have now got late effect services. We've tried to map what late effect services are out there throughout the UK. And we really would like to coordinate and get everybody's expertise on board because it's not just about what Lisa and I think um, and to try and say how, you know, we're trying to put something together for us to, this is how you go about setting up a service, but only in our in our view, you know. Um, so we're trying to do that along with some guidance on how to manage late effects because there just isn't education until, well, if, if I'm honest, until Kath really came along and said, she could see how much I was struggling with these questions we were getting and saying, well, let's try and put some kind of education together because a lot of what I get as well asked is, well, what what training do I need? Well, the masters modules that I did in pelvic radiation disease aren't even available anymore. They're not running anymore. A lot of the psychosexual stuff that I did, they're not. You can't get them um, modules anymore. So you know it's hard to then say what should you go and get trained in, because actually if you've got access to a lymphedema team. You might not need, a, a, need to be a specialist in lymphedema, whereas I've become a specialist in head and neck lymphedema. Not because we haven't got a lymphedema team, we've got an amazing lymphedema team, but because I was already seeing these patients and we recognised that actually, if I could identify the lymphedema earlier on, I could make a real impact. So it's all, it's all this about this coordination and liaising with other um, allied health professionals and other, you know, nursing professions to really see what you can do for this joint working, to see what is best for the patient rather than about constantly making separate referrals. So we really try now as a team to try and get the right people in the room at the right time. Um, and that's just become more of like a, a dedicated clinic now um, that we can actually have these special specialists in the clinic at that one time.
1: Yeah, and it, the multi-disciplinary working, sorry, is really important. I am sure. I mean, with your head and neck consultant post before, that would have been something that obviously you've seen a lot and the benefits for that kind of cohort. We've had you know a couple of guests on who've said, well, actually, wouldn't it be great if every patient had access to a dietitian for, to start with? Because there are little things you can tweak and change and make better or help you know with healthy eating advice and things like that. But I think, yeah, it, the special interest group I came to the last meeting. It's really good, even. Although I haven't seen that many patients with late effects, we don't have a late effects service. But it's it's interesting to learn, and I think that education element is really, really, really important. But it's good to have people like you and Lisa who are now shouting about it across the country a bit more. As you said, lots of patients have been missed, Um, and I suppose have you found any services across the world that have kind of been set up a long time ago around late late effects? I know you mentioned about the UK.
3: Um, so the MD Anderson do quite a lot around late effects um, in the USA. Um, I've had quite a lot of uh, collaboration with them, but you see, in other, because we're the National Health Service. <laughs> Other centres can get it, you know, throughout throughout the world, you pay for that service. So, of course, you can get access to a physiotherapist. Of course, they want to get you um, involved in, in this long-term follow-up. But we just don't have that in the, in the NHS. And because we're getting more and more patients on stratified follow-up and being discharged at possibly one year, six months even, you know, this is where we're going to start missing these patients because who's going to remember that it's a late effect and I'm very much about patient education at the end of treatment and you don't really as a radiographer probably want to say actually these are the late effects that you might get but it is so important because we cannot rely on the health professionals that they're going to see down the line to, th- to one thing is this related to the radiotherapy or chemo or actually think there's something that can be done about it and that is, and I think that's key. So certainly with a lot of the patients now in our department, we're going to try and look at what can we really do. So, um, you know, I mean, treatment summaries are great, but have you seen a treatment summary when you actually give that to look at for a patient? It's like, wow. It's like a two-sided A4 piece of information. We want some real bullet points to say these are the late effects that you may get if you're a prostate patient or if you're a breast patient. And actually there are some things that can be done about it. And I think every department could do that. It's not just about also so lucky to have a late effects service. There's other things that you could be signposted to. Um, you know, different websites that you can be supported to, to offer this, you know, even if it's not specific late effects management, there's lots of things that can be done
1: when can late effects come about and what do you what are the most common things that you see
3: so we class uh, we we don't see anybody until six months out of treatment so there is in the actual radiotherapy specification guidelines they do talk about late effects at three months there is no way we will see patients at three months because we really do find that between that three to six months to be fair three to nine months it can often settle down so but we class a late effect as anything that is not um an, an acute side effect that hasn't settled or anything that develops from that six month mark. And that is where the real problem lies because a lot of these develop once they're out of follow-up, five years, 10 years, 15 years out of treatment. I mean, the latest patient we've seen, I think was 39 years out of treatment and has struggled all that time until they got to our service. And then what, sorry, was your question, what, what do we mainly see? Well, you know, for pelvis patients, it, it's not surprising. It's your, you know, urinary problems, your bowel problems, um the 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 sexual dysfunction um breast patients it's predominantly it peripheral we see a lot with peripheral neuropathy from the chemo but a lot of that is about pain and this persistent pain that patients get after treatment a lot of that you have to work around the psychology of pain as well and it's often linked to what they had from their surgery and their cancer diagnosis and then the radiotherapy has come on um, board and caused a bit of a radiation fibrosis and it's caused that to be more problematic um, with the head and necks, it's an absolute whole host from dry mouth, but it's all, if I'm honest, is linked to radiation fibrosis, um, and that is so problematic for the head and neck patients. Um, you know, it starts with a little bit, or oh, they don't move their necks, and the mouths don't quite open as much. And then you see them five years later, and they cannot open their mouth, and they cannot move their necks. So, at what point did that happen? If we can get in earlier to get some exercise in, to get these exercises going, can we prevent these late effects happening, which is what I'm trying to do with the head and neck cohort. Then we move on to what every patient, every patient who comes to the clinic has, regardless of tumor or treatment site, and that is fatigue and the psychological issues and the psychosocial issues, because these patients feel very different afterwards. They feel very alienated. A lot of the ones patients who sorry ones that sounds awful. But a lot of the patients who have been living like this for a couple of years say to me, "I'm so glad I can come and talk to somebody about it," because they get sick of telling their friends and family about it. So they actually say they're okay because their friends and family will go, "You're doing well, aren't you? Haven't I mean, you doing well?" So they feel like they should do well, and they feel like they can't actually say how they're feeling. They get a lot of this survivor's guilt. And that, with a bit of post-traumatic stress from having you know, a, 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 a head and neck mass shell on, can be a, a phenomenal, really. Um, but it's really important to recognise all of these things. But a lot of the power I've always said in our service is, even for the patients that I don't necessarily think have not done their referrals here, I've not really done anything a bit more than sat and listen. but it's that power of listening to that patient giving them that, I mean, our appointments for an hour long, giving them that platform to really talk about where they've been, but also to then help them to understand, and this is why it is key for therapeutic radiographers to be doing this role, because if you can pull that treatment plan out or the old x-rays, I mean, the amount of times I go down to the bowels of our departments, pull out old x-rays to show them this is why you have got this effect, look at where the high dose was, If you can lead them to understand, you can lead them to acceptance. And I've been known to reduce distress thermometer scales of three to four by doing nothing more than talking and listening and helping them to lead to acceptance. And that's not actually rocket science. It's just about giving them the power. And then they go out feeling a bit, well, maybe I will go and do some exercise then. And maybe I will try and change my diet to help me live better. And you're changing their lives rather than improving quality of life without actually really doing more than sitting and listening and explaining. And that's where we have the power as radiographers, because we know radiotherapy, we understand radiotherapy, and that's where I think we have a, a real uh, power, really.
1: It's the best part of the job, isn't it? It's such a privilege to listen to a patient's story. I think, you know, we do forget that outside of the radiotherapy department where we're running an hour behind, we need them to have their bladder ready exactly when you want to get them in. There's so much more going on outside, you know they've, they've walked here or they're worried about not having their bladder full something like that it's it is a privilege and giving them the time and space is really good
0: it's it, it, we did um, an event recently for trek stock and we had some patients who'd had radiotherapy and um it was really insightful just listening to the patients about having the opportunity to talk about their late effects and and almost clarifying that they're not going mad and that yes that is as a result of their treatment it's so important one of the things that Naaman and I always advocate so we do a lot of patient education around specifically radiotherapy and we typically will say ask your therapeutic radiographers to show you your radiotherapy treatment plan so you can see what organs and they may not necessarily have the insight into you know knowing about radiotherapy or how it works but just seeing visually where the radiation is passing through gives them some insight which leads on nicely to Kath. how can we educate patients better as therapeutic radiographers or other healthcare professionals along that oncology pathway because i know you've done a lot of that through um prostate cancer uk haven't you yeah
2: so so educating
0: the patients yeah or or the healthcare professionals specifically to then be able to educate the patients i think
2: i think emma sort of covered the key points in terms of patient education. I think it's really important that after they've had their treatment with us and recognising that they might come back for further treatments, you know, it's it's not necessarily the end of treatment, you know, waiting till the very end of all the treatments they might be having, but recognising that, you know, supporting to follow up is a bit ad hoc. They might get the chance to sort of report their sort of things they're struggling with, but it might not necessarily be acted upon and educating them to know where they can get support that they might need and and educating them to sort of understand, you know, what is a a late effect, you know, understand why they might get these late effects and what they can do to help themselves, where they can source support from. The signposting is really important, I think. And just like, like Emma was saying, really, you know, having the confidence to be able to talk to them about these might be the potential late effects that you might experience it's you know even acknowledging how it might impact on them personally you know as therapeutic radiographers we do have the opportunity to build up a rapport with them and certainly if a patient asks you about something they're concerned about say for example their sexual well-being you know you you can signpost them to to support and things like that but every patient will have different concerns depending on what's important to them in that regard and and um you know it might be more to do with you know they they, they're feeling that there's a loss of intimacy with their partner because they're on androgen deprivation therapy for example and they're not really bothered about the you know the the sort of um sexual intercourse side of things but they they've lost that sort of there's more of a relationship concern there so Yeah, I think um, just being able to just have that confidence to talk to patients about their concerns and using your education as a a therapeutic radiographer or indeed another practitioner to, you know, if you don't feel confident, there are courses out there that can help you gain that sort of knowledge and skill in sort of communication skills um, and, and sort of using them to sort of develop and empathy and um sort of personalize your your approaches to how you care and talk to someone but yeah the signposting and, and the end of treatment information education on general sort of supported uh, you know healthy living uh, general advice but also there's this sort of um advice that you can give specific to their treatments as well that might help in terms of managing certain consequences so you know with the, the, the for me obviously with the prostate sort of side of things you know pe- with pelvic floor exercises are a big thing that are often talked about as um being really important and you know if you're talking about physical activity um you know talking about that in the context of fatigue but also in again in the context of context of maybe helping with some weight management because obviously if there's a weight issue there that can put pressure on the pelvic floor as well and you know that it's kind of um again sort of helping them to understand why these things are important to to help them with things that matter to them like the incontinence like the sort of sexual dysfunction aspects like the fatigue that we've recognized and understood and shown that to them that this is something that's really impacting on their life and these are the sort of things that we can advise them
0: emma Can I ask, with kind of what Kath has said, how does that translate into your clinical experience? So is there anything that you wish other people had talked to patients about further along in the pathway? Or, you know, you're a therapeutic radiographer. What do you wish um, that people would talk to their patients about or um, start to engage with them as they go through treatment?
3: I would like people, I'd like radiographers and um, other health professionals to acknowledge that life will be different for the patient afterwards, um, of of varying degrees. Um, Some patients do have an amazing life afterwards and have no problems whatsoever and actually think, oh, do you know what, I'm going to live the best life ever, I'm going to be really healthy, so, you know, I don't mean grateful, but I do mean grateful that they're here and they've had this treatment, but actually for many patients it's very different afterwards. And it actually doesn't matter what you think is problematic to that patient. Every patient has a different scale of what that problem will be and what it will mean to them. Um, I once did a talk um, um, to a group of head and neck consultants, surgeons and oncologists. And one of them said, I don't even consent for a dry mouth because they don't all get a dry mouth and we can't do anything about it anyway. And he said to me, so I don't even bother. And I was just horrified by this because I've had patients who've had to give up their jobs because of their dry mouth. Their relationships are broken down because of just a dry mouth. And he said to me, what would you say? What would you do you think I should say to the patients?" And I said, I think you need to say to every head and neck patient that the life will be different for you. And for head and neck patients, it definitely is different. I've not met one head and neck patient that doesn't have any effect after treatment. I don't mean they're not all managing it very well because many of them do. But I think that's really important that we acknowledge that life will be different for many patients afterwards Um, and that actually there are some things that can be done about it. But for others, there are services out there that can help you to live better with how we've left you, really.
1: Kath, before I ask you about your top tips, just around the education side has just popped into my head. Do you think with promoting our profession and what we do, educating kind of bystanders so let's say family members or other people about survivorship and late effects could help as well
2: yeah definitely i think yeah i think um yeah knowing knowing that sort of you know the therapeutic radiographer can help their their family member member that's going through the the treatment and that they can seek advice and support from them in terms of moving forwards after their treatment and where to get support if they struggle with anything um and and yeah for the the family member to play a role in um you know sort of i think yeah i think it's important like like emma was saying you know sometimes the conversations stop because it's kind of just a, a permanent thing almost um and i think if the family members can sort of uh if we can ed- play a role in educating the family members around the late consequences as well i think that that's important to help them understand what their loved ones might be going through and and also there's certain you know the, the side effects will be impacting on them as well um and so it's important to for them to understand why that might be i th- I, th- I was just going to say uh, Nayman, i thought you've raised a really interesting point I, I it was something that popped into my head when i was thinking about the role of education for practitioners And and our sort of professional identity, and I I really feel quite strongly about um, the importance of this topic uh, being an absolutely integral part of our role as a therapeutic radiographer. Um, I think we really do need to, you know, work hard to be able to play a clear and visible role in the support of our patients affected by the consequences of cancer and its treatment, and not just see our role as sort of in the delivery of, of treatment and the management of acute effects I think we really do we, we should we have the skills like Emma was saying the knowledge to, to, to really sort of be able to, to, to sort of support patients moving forward after their treatment to you know play a play a role early on in that that pathway of, of sending them off with with the, the education the skills the knowledge to really sort of feel supported moving into that sort of post-treatment survivorship sort of period Um, and we really can make a difference in that regard I think we obviously have the advanced the specialist roles uh, such as Emma's in the late effects clinics but I think as Emma was saying it it shouldn't be the remit of the specialist therapeutic radiographer um, you know or or the on-treatment review radiographer everybody should be able to have a conversation with someone that Uh, about a a particular effect that might be um concerning them um not just in terms of the acute side effects but but um you know they will have consented and be not you know aware um of of possible late effects and it might be things that are concerning them already whilst they're with us um and i do you know we i do feel quite strongly that we we need to ensure that we have maintain our knowledge and skills in that area of patient support and I, you know it's more like when IMRT and IGRT came in we, we didn't have any qualms about upskilling and you know adding to our knowledge base around what they were because that was the you know it was about it was important it was about driving our practice forwards and I think the same parallel could be drawn with you know the importance of survivorship and the care um, you know we need to embrace this sort of concept of it you know, supporting patients into, you you know, that sort of um, longer term period after they've had their treatment with us for sure.
0: Oh, thank you, Kath. And I would, I would like to think I I certainly have witnessed it, um, working nationally with HEIs who are training therapeutic radiographers that this is becoming more part of undergraduate curriculum. I still think there's a long way that we've got to go because as we know with a lot of things, you can implement curriculum changes, but until they see it out in practice, you know, it's very daunting for a student to start to have these conversations with patients if they've never seen a colleague who's already qualified having them. Um, So there's definitely work that we can do, but it's reassuring at least, and I know there's a project being led by Health Education England um, that's just starting to To start now with work streams um, called Ascend, which we'll put a link in. But essentially, that's looking at providing oncology training um, across all of the pathway. So, you know, if you're in a generalised nursing role or a generalised physiotherapy course, how can you access more education? specifically on oncology which I think would have a massive impact if everyone was aware of you know can you imagine going to your physio appointment and having it recognized that certain symptoms are as a result of cancer treatment rather than oh let's send you to your GP to see if they can help diagnose why you've got that Um, and hopefully that will see some changes from that perspective um we kind of get we, we could go on and talk about this all night really easily because I love it as much as you do, and I'm sure that people listening would be like, I just want to learn more, so we might have to have you both on again uh, to do like a follow up series. Um, but Kath, what are your top 10 tips? You don't necessarily have to to go for 10, maybe split it between you and Emma. But if there's kind of takeaway messages that you'd love people to kind of go away with, whether it's healthcare professionals, students, patients, is there anything that you'd love people to consider and maybe promoting what you offer as an educator? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, I
2: think think in terms of, I suppose, what's important in terms of that day-to-day care is to recognize the person as an individual when they're coming for treatment with you and you know we're in a very very sort of privileged but also um, you know very well p- positioned um, sort of you know we have that we have so much opportunity to be able to sort of pick up on any concerns that a patient might have and um, yeah I think I think just being, you know, even if you're not in a specialist role, I think it's really important to sort of, um, you know, always be mindful of the potential consequences of our cancer, uh, of cancer and its treatment in, you know, in not just the physical impact, but the, the psychosocial impact as well. And and I think it, the more you become more knowledgeable of that through your own reading or, or, or sort of formal study you might do, I think that gives you increasing confidence to have conversations with patients. And it doesn't have to be about just you know starting that conversation with someone it can be just about picking up on a cue and seeing it where where it takes you in terms of if they seem a bit deflated one day or mention a particular side effect that's getting them down you know just taking the time to explore a little bit more about why it's getting them down and not just leaping straight into the oh well I've got a you know we can refer you to the the review team or there's a medication we can give you for this or that you know just taking the time to sort of explore that wider impact of of what they might be struggling with i think in terms of a top tip you know there is formal study opportunities out there like msc modules mine and there are others elsewhere as well um, which is a good thing that we're getting better in in that respect across the heis Um, but i think you know there is a lot of good resources out there especially from the charities so Pelvic Radiation Disease Association, Prostate Cancer UK, Macmillan, um, Breast Cancer Now, you know, just to name a few. But they're, they often put on free events for healthcare professionals to learn more about the, the, these topics we've been discussing this evening. Um, including, you know, how to talk to patients about the sort of health and well-being sort of things with, you know, that, that will help them sort of self-manage the consequences of certain side effects um, they might be experiencing so I think I think a top tip would be to sort of you know act, it's easy to access sort of free education in this area actually I don't know what M thinks on this you know to, at a general level certainly in terms of just taking the time to educate yourself and being more mindful of how our treatments can affect someone and therefore give I think that then gives you the confidence to talk about it um, it, it would be my thought
0: on on that i think that's something that naaman and i are really passionate about if you just go through the back catalogue of people that we've had on the podcast there's so many people from different charities or patients who you know they might have experienced a, a side effect from treatment and they have obviously gone out and and found resources that they could utilize so emma top five tips because you're sharing them um what would what would you say and if you don't mind i'm going to be a little bit prescriptive what would you say to patients who have been 25 years sitting with a condition as a result of a consequence of treatment
3: okay well the first thing i really want to a, a top tip is for all the therapeutic radiographers out there is that we really should not be saying anymore that your treatment will carry on working for two weeks and then it'll get better because for many it doesn't um, a varying degree so it's not to frighten anybody but actually I don't think we should be saying that I think we should be saying that you know your treatment the treatment does carry on working for a little while afterwards and it can take many months if not years for some of the side effects to settle um, and life may be different afterwards so I think that's really important Alongside with then signposting, like cancer if you haven't got a late effects service um, to, to, to signpost to, to just say that there is other services out there that can help, such as even, you know, Macmillan is a really good place to start, if not Prostate UK, breast cancer care, proud that, you know, the work. So, all of those. Um, and what would, did you say, did you, was your question, what would I say to patients?
0: Yeah if you had a patient who'd ha- who'd had radiation therapy a long time ago or chemotherapy and they're, they're like oh this is just a consequence of my treatment but they are their quality of life is heavily impacted.
3: So they wouldn't just say this is just a consequence for honest this is where they would then start to unravel and tell you everything and I have actually apologized to patients before and said I am so sorry that you know we know so much more now about the late effects of treatment but back then we didn't. So let's see how we can, what we can do to help you live better with how you've been left. The other thing what um, I think is really important is to really recognise, and I forgot what I was going to say now my train of thought has gone. What was I going to say? Oh, it's gone. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, yes. Um, so the other thing I was going to say is that what's really important is to remember that we can't always fix everything. But it's about listening to the patient, helping them to understand, like I said earlier, how they've been left and then helping them lead towards that acceptance as to how things are now and then helping them to live better with how we've left them. But often, I think, particularly as radiographers, certainly when I was doing on treatment review, you always feel like you've got to have an answer. You feel like you've got to be able to fix that acute, let's give you this medication, let's do this. And actually, with a lot of late effects, you can't do that. You know, radiation, fibrosis, it's the radiotherapy is the gift that keeps on giving. It's this evergreen monster that keeps on affecting patients. And, you know, we can do all we can to try and help them live better with that. But the patients have got to be aware that for some of these things, they are lifelong. Um, So, yeah, so it's just about not rushing in there, thinking you can fix it. Um... And also not stepping back and thinking, well, I can't possibly talk about that and open that kind of words because I know I can't fix it. Because yeah. actually it's just that power of listening um, to the patient is really important. And, and and a little bit what Kath said as well about then personalising that to the patient and really getting to the, you know, to the depths of actually we can understand why it's so important to you, a dry mouth, because of this, you know, whereas to somebody else it might not be as important. But it's about personalising their late effects to them, really, if that makes sense.
2: I've thought of another one that Emma and I were talking about before the um, podcast started, which was that thing Emma about uh, sort of that message around just because our, you know, like this. Uh, certainly, when things are uh, published around a particular technical advance, they report on low low levels of toxicity. And what they often and most often mean is those higher grades of toxicity that would, you know, likely make a, pay, a, a new advance in treatment probably not feasible. You know, they'd step back from it a bit because they're, they're seeing the higher grades of toxicity that they don't want to see. But that doesn't mean that our treatments um, our advances in treatment are side effect free. Um, was was the other thing we were talking about, wasn't it? Em? And and that you know we are still with the lower levels of toxicity. You know, like when they say, oh, the majority of patients only had grade one RTOG side effect. Uh, you know, for a urinary urinary symptoms, for example, urinary bother. That grade one. If you if you look at what that actually means, the definition of it. If you had that for the rest of your life, that would lead to potentially a significant level of bother um so so yeah I think that was the other thing we were sort of say, wanted to say wasn't it that you know don't don't be sort of you know I think we can sort of think that with our advanced techniques now that we're, we're sort of you know we haven't got the side effects that we used to and we haven't in the sense of the real sort of se- severe ones um, but the fibrosis in particular, which has such a massive impact, is still going to happen. Um, I don't know whether you wanted to add anything to that, because it was your point that you made to me earlier.
3: <laughs> yeah, it was. It was just really. I mean, we've got patients going to the Christie at the minute for proton therapy, and we're just seeing their their uh, effects, but at a different time point. Uh, I mean, that's more in the acute setting, but they're still there because actually where their cancer is in the first place we still need to get that dose in so actually we're these late effects are never going to go away they're just going to maybe pop up and recognize it and be more severe to certain patients at, at varying time points but they're always going to be there because it's radiation that, that, that's causing the problem
0: oh thank you Um, that's a really important point to focus on and obviously leading forward for anyone listening who is engaging in research and evidence base it's good to have that perspective and make sure that that's kind of recognized especially as covid has created changes to practice um it's important to consider and and advances in software and if we look just specifically within radiotherapy um mr linux everyone goes you know if we can really focus the dose you still have to get the dose to that area that you are essentially treating. So it's a really good point to to finish on. So thank you again so much for joining us. It's been absolutely amazing and I'm sure anyone listening who's working in oncology would have got a lot out of it as well as any patients who potentially are going through treatment or yet to have um, treatment so thank you for listening to our Chat your hosts today have been myself, Jo McNamara and my co-host name Angelica Anderson, a huge thank you to our guests Catherine Holborn and Emma Hallam if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes please answer the reflective questions posted along with it, there'll also be the resources and literature that we've discussed and so to receive your accredited cpd certificate please just complete the google form so our next guest to feature will be victoria Cuthill who will be discussing genomics so thank you so much for listening take care and good night